0: If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn with me to the epistle of Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. And our text is verses 14 through 18 this morning. And the title of the sermon is Growing in the Grace of Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is not your typical Christmas message in that I am finishing up a series of messages we've been studying over the last few weeks and months. Uh, Tuesday night, we'll share a more typical Christmas message, if you will, albeit it will be abbreviated shorter. But I've been so excited about uh, closing out this epistle because, especially because of this epilogue, this concluding word by the Apostle Peter, and he's talking about the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ. This is a very uh, Christocentric message, as all messages should be in a Christian church. They should center and focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly, it's precisely what we will do today as we accentuate, highlight, and focus on the grace of God. The grace of God is God's unmerited favor. It is His love. It is God not giving to us uh, what we all deserve. What we deserve is death and punishment. I don't think anybody would disagree with that because we all are by nature and by choice, we are sinners. But God demonstrated His love toward us. In that while we were still in our sinful state, Jesus Christ came and He died for us. And the Bible says that He died a vicarious, substitutionary death. He took our place on the cross. He bore our sin, our punishment, our guilt, our stain, our immorality, our adultery, our drunkenness, all of our sin. The Bible says that God the Father put squarely on His Son, Jesus Christ— And the sinless one who knew no sin took all the sin upon himself and he paid our ransom, he paid our price, so that if we will trust in him and believe in him, when we die, we spend eternity with him in heaven. Now that is the message of Christmas, that is the message of Easter, that is the message of the Christian faith in in its total, in its sum, that God so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus That whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, if you knew you were about to die, I'm sure you would use your words carefully. You would be careful what you say to those who are gathered around you. And this is exactly what Peter does. As he is near the end of his life, the Apostle Peter uh, in A.D. 66, as he pens these words to the church there in the first century. Now, the first epistle, he talks about hope a lot talks about a living hope we have in Christ. But in the second epistle, he talks about truth. And there's a very powerful three chapters as he exposes false teachers. And he really affirms, admonishes, encourages, and blesses those who are followers of Christ. And so today, I hope that you are encouraged by this atypical Christmas message as it focuses on uh, the grace of God. So let me read it to you, beginning in chapter 3. Uh, Verse 14, his epilogue, his concluding remarks when he says, therefore, therefore, beloved, agape toy. Now, when he uses this word agape toy, you know who his audience is. He is talking about uh, the church of God. He is talking about those who are uh, committed to Christ and they've given their lives in service to Him. And many of those will have, they will give their lives in death and they will die martyrs' deaths just like He will. Therefore, my beloved, We look ahead, we look forward to these things. Now the antecedent for things, these things, refers to what he's been talking about in the preceding verses. He's talking about a day of hope, the day of God when God comes again and God removes the present world order, the heavens and the earth, they are dissolved. There's a conflagration, there's a burning away of the old. And God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, and we reign with Him. We live with Him forever. And Peter says, we look ahead. We we are not people of the past. We are not people of defeat, but we are people of hope. And we look ahead toward these things. And in light of that, he says this, be diligent. The first of four imperative verbs in the Greek New Testament that Peter will give us as he concludes this powerful epistle, he says, commandment number one Let us be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider, commandment number two, consider that the long-suffering or the patience of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all of his epistles, in his epistles, speaking in them of these things... "...in which are some things hard to understand... ...which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction... ...as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You, therefore, notice the contrast. Uh, You are not false, but you are true. You are not those who twist, but you are those who believe. He says, you, therefore, beloved, agape toy, since you know this beforehand... Here's commandment number three, beware or be on the alert, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. And then verse 18, he uses this fourth imperative. He says, but grow. Now, this imperative is a little bit different than the other three preceding. This one is actually a present active imperative, which means it's in the present tense, which is habitual, ongoing, And he says, let let us grow continually, habitually. Let us continue to maximize, if you will. Let us continue to move forward in grace. Man, what a good word. Let us us grow in the grace and the gnosis, or the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now he finishes with this crescendo of praise. He finishes with this, resounding, reverberating glory to God. Listen to what he says. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. Thank You for the promises of Scripture, and we thank You for the warnings also. Thank You, God, for each person that is here today listening to the Word of God as it is preached from this place. I ask You, Lord, to speak to us. Father, we ask You to to reveal things to us, about us, that we need to change. Reveal things to us, O God, about Yourself that we need to applaud and we need to appreciate, worship, and adore. Lord, we truly don't want to miss a thing. We don't want to miss anything that You want to speak to us today. God, thank You that in the midst of Your holiness that in the midst of Your power and Your wrath, that you're also a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of peace. And so, Lord, today we want to find you. We want to meet you in your word. And Lord, as I'm praying to you now, I'm going to ask you to reveal yourself in such power, in such conspicuous, inexorable power today that there may be a person that for the very first time in this setting, in this place, they would see, God, how very much you love them. And before this hour is over, Lord, they will have trusted you, repented of their sins, and placed their faith in you. Lord, that is my prayer. And I also pray, Lord, for the body of Christ, the church of God, here at Great Hills, that you would bless them, God, and may they grow in peace, and may they grow in grace and in knowledge, for this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 14, I want to just share a word of introduction with you because we we really begin in verse 15 as we're going to look at a portrait and a personification of grace. But before we do that, let's look at verse 14 again. Peter says, therefore, let us look forward to these things, these things of hope. And let us be, uh, interesting words, spedazzo. And it's where we get the English word speed or speedy. Let us hasten. Let us be speedy. Let us make every effort, really is a good translation with alacrity with eagerness with excitement let us be diligent to be found by god when god comes again or when we close our eyes in death and we move into the presence of almighty god may we be found in a place of peace the greek word there is irene and it means a tranquility when I was taking Greek in uh, undergrad and graduate courses, I took a lot of years of Greek, and, and, I, and I have a hard time remembering, how can I remember that Irene means Greek? And I just thought of the word Iran, they have no peace, so that, that was it. I just remembered it. Well, Irene, it means peace. And so it means the cessation of war. It means tranquility. It means to be right with God. And right with our fellow man, right with God vertically, right with our fellow man horizontally. And when God comes, let us be found in peace. Watch this. Not, verse 14, in spot. Now, the the word there, spot, if I'm in verse 14, if you you may want to just underline this word. It's a very interesting word. It's the Greek word, aspiloi. The word "spilloy" is where we get the English word spill or spot or stain. But whenever you put the alpha privative in front of that word or the negate or the alpha, for example, if you're a theist, you believe in God. If you're an atheist, you do not believe in God. And so "spilloy" means to be stained, to be spotted, to be soiled, like you would soil a garment. But if you put the A in front of it, then you have just the antithesis. You have just the opposite. He says, Let us be found in God in peace when He comes again. And let us not be stained a spilloid, but let us be pure and spotless. And that next word there is spotless or blameless. It means to be innocent of wrongdoing with no moral defect whatsoever. And so Peter's talking to the church. He's talking to us, and He's challenging us, and He's encouraging us that as we journey and as we pilgrimage through this life, as we are making our way to a greater day, let us be different as the church of God. Let us have a sense of purpose, and let us be not those who are saturated or stained with sin, but let us be pure and pristine and holy. I love the way one writer puts it. He taught New Testament at the University of London many years ago, and he And he sums this word up very powerfully when he says, and I quote him, he says, The disciples, accordingly, they are called to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent, end of quote. He says, Let us be different, and therefore... Let me share this word with you about God's grace. God's grace will catapult you into being peaceful. He will catapult you. He will will send you in in a place where you are not stained with sin, but you're gladly awaiting the return of Christ. So let's look at verse 15. And I've called verse 15 grace personified. And he says, and consider or think carefully is a good translation. Think carefully about this that the long-suffering of our Lord Jesus is salvation. Let's stop there for just a minute. He says the, the patience of God, the long-suffering of Christ results in our salvation. This is the same word, by the way, used in verse 9, and it's translated long-suffering or it's translated uh, patience. And so what he's saying here is we have the very epitome personification and portrait of grace when we see Jesus Christ. And because God loves us and God is for us, and because God is extremely compassionate and patient with us, that is the reason we have salvation. That is the reason we are not obliterated from planet Earth the moment that we sin is because God has patience with us. I I think I've shared this with you before, but I remember... I was talking to a man not long ago and I was sharing with him about the Lord and he corrected me. He says, I just want to to stop you right there and I just want you to know, I am not one of those people. I am not one of those Christian people. I am not a God-fearing man. And some of y'all are like... Well, what happened next? Did God just, like, send a lightning bolt and zap him like a bug off the pavement? I mean, you know, like, boom! Did God just take him out and send him to hell because, man, he was determined that's where he wanted to go, so did God just grant him his wish? No. You know why? Because God's patient. Hey, aren't you glad God's patient? Aren't you glad today that God does not give you what you many times ask for and what you deserve? Aren't you glad that God in His forbearance God in His long-suffering, God in His amazing grace, He does not give us what we deserve. He gave that to His Son. He gave to Jesus what you and I deserve. He gave Him this capital punishment. He bore the sin of the entire world so that you and I could go cut free into heaven. That's why they call it amazing grace. This is grace Man, this is Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, every other Christian holiday I can think of all rolled into one. It's all about this amazing grace of God that He lavishes. He pours upon upon you and upon me, and I'm so grateful. Verse 15, he gives us a couple more portraits of grace. He says, our beloved brother Paul. Now, this is interesting to me. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul confronted Peter, the same guy who's writing this epistle. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter was playing the part of a hypocrite. Peter was... um, Peter was... um, being hypocritical in his uh, dealings with the church. And Paul called him out on it and said, Peter, you're playing the part of a hypocrite. You shouldn't do that. You're acting one way with the Jews. You're acting another way with the Gentiles. And you need to get right with God. Paul called him out. And so, so much for the fallacy of the, of the pope. People say, well, the pope cannot sin. Well, the first pope sinned. You know, you know what I'm saying? Peter sinned. He, he, he sinned because, and Paul called him out And so instead of being grudging, instead of being bitter, instead of being unforgiving toward Paul, he's just the opposite. In fact, he says, he is my agape brother. He is full of the wisdom of God. You know what I call that? I call that grace. When you can forgive someone, that has harmed you, yet whether they was right or whether they were wrong, and you can extend grace and forgiveness and compassion and mercy to them, man, I tell you, that is a beautiful demonstration of the Christian faith. When you have the wherewithal to forgive someone, even though you may be a little angry and bitter about it, you say, no, I'll let that go, and i just give them grace. And then he says, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, he has written to you about these things. And I thought about that, and I thought, where in the 13 letters of Paul in the 27 books of the New Testament does he talk about these things? And it's really everywhere, because especially in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, let me, let me give you just one example. In Romans 2, 4, it says, Do you despise the riches of His goodness, God's forbearance, and there's that word, God's patience, or God's long suffering. And knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. See, see, Paul is preaching the same message that Jesus preached, that Peter preached, that all the apostles preached, that this pastor today is preaching. It is a message of God's grace. It is a message of abundant love and forgiveness, lavish poured out upon us. It is grace personified, a portrait of grace given by Christ and given by His apostles. I I, I tell you, I've been thinking a lot about grace this week and I'm just especially grateful for it. In fact my favorite song today or this week is called uh, This is Amazing Grace. Have y'all heard this song by Phil Wickham? Uh, Man it's so good. Let, Let me just read a little bit to you it says, this is amazing grace this is unfailing love that you would take my place that you would bear my cross listen to this part that you would lay down your life for me, that I would be set free, Jesus, I sing, for all that you have done for me. Who brings our chaos back to order? Who makes the orphan a son and a daughter? I'll tell you who it is, the King of glory, the glory, glorious King above all kings. When I was thinking about this this week and... God's grace and portraits of grace and personifications of grace, of course, Christ especially. I thought for some reason, I thought about a man by the name of Randy Chatham. Randy was a member of the first church that I served as a pastor in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex area in Keller. I, Randy came to church, and there are some guys you just can't miss them when they're six foot six, about 300 pounds, about my size, you know what I'm saying? About six, six, 300 pounds come in. And his story was amazing. Randy was a member of the notorious Fort Worth, Texas motorcycle gang called the Bone Crushers. (laughs) They didn't go around singing Christmas carols, by the way. The Bone Crushers, true to their word, they were a mean, renegade bunch of guys. And Randy, uh, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So Randy was... uh, put on a dare. Somebody dared him. They said, I dare you to go to church. And he says, I'm not afraid of nobody, no God, no religion, or anything. And so he did. I mean, he was, I mean, decked out in his, his motorcycle regalia. I mean, mountain of a man. He went and sat in the back seat. He folded his arms, and he just stared at the preacher, just sneered at him, just like a couple of you over here doing to me this morning. I'm just kidding, just kidding. I just, he just kind of sneered, and he just stared at the preacher. Well, the preacher got up, And he just preached on the grace gospel of God. How it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, if you will come to God and repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me, God will wipe away your past and you will be a new person. And that's precisely what happened to Randy Chatham. God miraculously touched this man. This man hated people. He terrorized. I personally firsthand heard his neighbor come to me and say, this guy used to terrorize me. I mean, he scared the out of me because he is this mountain of a man. He would shake his fist at me. And so he hated people. He hated children. He hated life. He hated God. And in a moment, God touched him and saved him. I baptized him. Yeah, I... <laughs> baptized him, lowered him down, and raised him. I'm still amazed today that I was able to baptize this guy. Fortunately, you're very buoyant and light in water. And so, baptized him, baptized his wife, wife Denise. God gave them two precious children, two girls. And he just, I mean, he was like a doting father. I mean, he said, "How how does that happen? I mean, really, time out. I'm not a very religious person, but can you explain to me how in the world does that happen? It is called grace. It's called amazing grace. When God would take a person like you and a person like me, a person like Randy, and He would so transform them and change them and forgive them, I call that a portrait of of grace. In verse 16, Peter goes on as he's teaching us. In verse 16, he talks about those who pervert grace. And he says in verse 16, now Paul does write in his epistles and he says some things in them that are hard to understand. And I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I was like, hey man, somebody else sees this. I mean, Paul's letters are not always the easiest to understand, for example, the book of Romans. But he said, but some people take thing, these things that he has written. These are untaught and unstable people. And they twist Paul's words, if you will, to their own peril or destruction as they do the rest of um, Scripture. He describes those who would pervert the grace of God by saying they are unstable people, they are untaught people. And, and again, I don't, I don't have to go through what y'all read and experienced this, this week with all the, the brouhaha about Duck Dynasty and what Phil Robertson has said. And, and, and you know, people, people take the grace of God and they take, twist it and they truncate it and they manipulate it and they usually do one of two things. They add to the grace of God and become legalists. Or they take away from the grace of God and they become libertarians. Let let, let me expound upon that for just a moment. Because that is precisely what was happening in the first century and it is what is happening in the 21st century. These untaught, unstable people, they, they take God's Word, and they, and they twist it and, and truncate it in such a way that it doesn't come out as the grace of God. It comes out of some kind of man-made religion. Now, l- let me share some verses with you from Paul's writings to the, in the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans, where he addresses both the legalist and the antinomians, or the libertarians. So first of all, he says, I marvel, O church at Galatia, that you are turning away so soon from God who called you in the grace. Please don't miss that. I'm so amazed that you have abdicated, that you have turned away from God's grace, and now you've gone to a different gospel, which is really not another, but there are some who twist, truncate, trouble, annoy you, and they want to pervert The gospel of Christ. Now, give you a little bit of context, the Judaizers, the legalists in Galatia, they came into the church and they said, yeah, we know all about this God's grace, God's grace, God's amazing grace, blah, 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 but let me tell you what it's really about. It's not about grace at all. It's about you believe in Jesus, that's okay, but you better keep the law, you better obey every one of God's commandments, and you better work, work, work your way to heaven. That's what this gospel is all about. And Paul's like, have y'all lost your mind? I mean, you've gone back to an old legalism, and that is not about grace at all. And then he says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Now, these are still in Galatians. Only do, and these are the libertarians, all right? Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So in the one book, Peter said he did this. Peter said that Paul addressed those untaught, unstable people who perverted the gospel, and he did. Right there in the book of Galatians, he addressed the Judaizers, the legalists, and now he just addressed the antinomians and the libertarians. The antinomians... And I've said this many times, but i got to keep remembering that God brings new people to us every Sunday. And I need to define my terminology. Anti means against, and nomos is the Greek word for law. And so they came in, they said, there are no laws. It's all about God's grace. Live like you want to live. Have sexual relations with as many women, guys, as you possibly can. And drink and party all that you want because it's okay because God's forgiven us and we're on our way to heaven. Woo, man! What a religion is it? And Paul says, "Y'all've lost your mind." I mean, you you have cut the very nerve of Christianity. Christianity says that God saves you. He changes you so that you don't perpetuate that behavior. You don't sleep with everybody, you see. You don't go in a drunken stupor. No, you don't abuse people with your tongue. But no, you serve God now. And you're a different creature. You see see what he's getting at? He's addressing the Judaizers on the one hand, the legalists. A lot of Baptists today. who are pharisaical. They add to the commandments of God, and their religion is such a religion that it is man-made. It has little to do with grace, has a lot to do with law, and we have truncated, we have missed the whole message of the gospel. And then in Romans, he says, and what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Heaven forbid, he said, no. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So I hope I've given you ample evidence and examples of where Peter referenced Paul and Paul dealt with those who misinterpreted the grace of God. Anybody here doing that? Anybody in the house today leaning toward legalism and adding to God's grace? Or is there anybody here today taking away from God's grace and minimizing it and giving it a cheap religion, a cheap grace? Well, if you're on either side, I've got news for you. You can come back to God. You can come back to the pure teaching of His Word and live a life of peace and freedom, but also a life of of holiness and righteousness. You know, it's an interesting word here, the word twist. I want to show it to you. It's in verse 16. These people twist the gospel to their own destruction. The original Greek word for this is it's where you would take a person and you were torturing him. And and they had all kinds of torturous abilities, the Romans did. And the cross was the the epitome of torture. But they had this thing called the rack. And they would lay your body on this rack and they would tie your hands and they would tie your feet and then they would roll those and you would start to stretch out. And you would stretch to the point you'd hear this pop and that would be one of your tendons. Or you would hear another pop and it would be a joint and they would dislocate your arms, dislocate your legs, and you would be in such a torturous, painful position, you would say anything to get yourself a little bit of relief. That's the word there. He says there are those who twist and pull at the Bible and Scriptures that they make the Bible say all kinds of things that the Bible never meant to say. And we see that even today. You see people twisting and and truncating the the, the gospel of of God, the, the grace of God. I heard this over and over, even this week. As people were taking Scripture out of context and they were making it say something it never intended to say. And so the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, I'm not psychic and I can't read people's minds. And I'm skeptical of those who say that they can I remember one time I actually drove by a psychic and I knocked on their door and I said, can I just talk to you for a minute? And they said, sure. And I just went in and shared the gospel with them. I just told them about Christ. And she looked at me and she goes, are you a preacher? And I said, yes, I am. And she goes, okay, time's up. You can, you can go now. I'm not a psychic, but I want to tell you this. There are some sitting in this church today and you're going, you're thinking to yourself, this is the most bizarre Christmas sermon <laughs> that I have ever heard in my entire life. You're welcome. I wanted to preach just a little bit of a different Christmas sermon to you today. I want to give you a biblical exposition, an exegetical message, because here's what I believe. It's kind of like Easter. You wouldn't be here unless you believed. And you wouldn't, believe, you wouldn't be here today unless you believed. And so I thought if I could just preach the grace gospel of Jesus Christ, that God would speak to your heart, and I pray that He is. So I want to close with this word here. In, ver- in, in, in number three, it's 17 and 18. It's grace persevered. This is my favorite part of the sermon. He says, therefore, beloved, since you know this, since you know that these things are going to happen, there will be those who will twist the Scriptures. You need to beware. And this is that third imperative verb. And it means to be on the lookout, to watch out for. Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. In verse 17, it takes us five English words to translate one Greek participle. And here it is. Since you know this beforehand. Five English words to translate prognostis, prognostis. It's a participle. It sounds like prognosis. That's exactly right. It's where we get the English word prognosis or prognosticate. It means to know beforehand. Okay, knowing this beforehand, let us be on the alert. Let us be steadfast. Let us not fall from our steadfastness. I love this word translated steadfastness. It's the Greek word sterigmos. Now, let me tell you something. There are some words... That are just downright masculine. Can can I just say a word about a masculine, beefy? I'm a sterigmos. Come on! I mean, that is not an effeminate word. That is a strong, sturdy we steadfast, and it means to persevere. It means to be determined. And Peter is telling them, and he's telling us, in light of people misunderstanding the grace gospel of Jesus Christ, in light of the, of the libertarians, in light of the legalists, you stand strong. You be determined. You stand strong in the gospel of Jesus Christ and do not let anything sway you to the right or to the left. Sterigmos. moss mm. Damn! What a, what a word. Steregmos kind of people. I, I thought about George Washington. I, I know, maybe I'm strange. But George Washington was a steregmos kind of guy. You know, used to, we would elect people to office who had demonstrated the ability to lead, then we would make them president. Today, for some reason, we've done just the opposite. For the life of me, I can't understand how we can put somebody in a position and they have very little to no leadership ability. I don't, I don't know who the next president, some think it's going to be the first female president, it may be, or, the, or another guy. Certainly, is going to take the guy's places in there now, amen. But anyhow, whoever's coming, I hope, that we will elect somebody who has a modicum of leadership ability who has demonstrated the ability to lead. Okay, just just demonstrate that, and then you come in and and you lead. And George Washington was that kind of guy. Let let, let me explain to you his steric, kind of character, his persevering, determinate character. 1755, he is fighting with General Braddock, in what is today, modern-day Pennsylvania. He and Braddock with the Brits, they are fighting the French and the... Somebody help me. The Indians. I know it's going to change a lot in, in a few years, but for now, in 1755, they are fighting it out. They are greatly outnumbered, and Braddock and Washington lose 713 men, and the Indians and the French lose 30 men. Okay? And they're in this battle. And George Washington survives the battle, and he writes a letter to his mother and to his brother, and he says, you know, I really should not have made it out alive. I've counted four bullet holes in my vest, four massive bullet holes in my vest, and yet my skin was untouched. He said, I had many horses, plural, shot out from under me and yet I still live to this day and this is what George Washington said because almighty god protected me and preserved me 1755 and 1770 just a few years before the American Revolution and then of course the battle of Yorktown amen in 1780s and I used to live in Yorktown Virginia for of all places And, of course, he's going to be catapulted into fame. He's going to become the next president of the United States. And the reason he will be is because he has demonstrated this ability to lead, this persevering spirit, this determinate spirit. And this is what he, he went back in 1755, and he met one of those Indian chiefs. And the Indian chief, excuse me, in 1770, which is 15 years removed from the battle, the old Indian chief said, I was a young warrior then, and it was my responsibility to shoot you off of your horse. But for some reason, I kept shooting your horses. And I'm a pretty good shot. Seventeen times I shot at you, but I could never kill you. So I wanted to come and meet the man that God would not let die. Those, those are the kind of people that used to lead our nation. These kind of persevering, <laughs> warring spirits of people that... I mean, they, they had this grit about it. I just, I just want you all to know something. I've never been in the military, but I want to tell you something. If, if I'm riding a horse and it gets shot out from under me, I'm saying, Lord, I've served my purpose. I'm leaving. I'm just, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to stay there. George Washington stayed there, had horse after horse shot out from under him. And I thought about, that's moss. That is the ability to stand, and that is the word that Peter is using. He's saying, oh, church of God. Beware, lest any of you fall from your sterygmos, but be steadfast, be strong, do not be led away with the error of the wicked. Oh, I hope you hear this word today, because there is such a propensity and a proclivity for the church of God to fall into legalism, to fall into libertarianism, to say, oh, what the heck, everybody else is doing it, I think I'll just give in. no. We're going to stand strong. And in some miraculous way, we're going to keep that precious balance of holiness and love, of this grace gospel of Jesus Christ. And and finally in verse 18, here it is. Peter's last words. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the intensity and the vitality of what he's about to pin? He says, but grow. Present active imperative. Grow. Go deep in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. It's interesting that Peter says, O church, grow in grace. And then grow in knowledge. And it's interesting to me that he did not say grow in knowledge and grace. But he said grow in grace and in knowledge. I think it's because the Holy Spirit certainly knows that the older we get, the more educated we can become, but the less like Jesus we become, some of us do, in our years of following Christ. It's it's almost like you know, you got on the one hand, you got this guy who says, well, I don't care if I'm as dumb as a rock theologically. I'm just going to be nice to people. I'm just going to be gracious. And I think that's erroneous. And then you got other people who say, well, I'm going to be brilliant theologian and I'm going to know everything the Bible says and you just better get out of my way because I've got a little tolerance for you, inklings you, ignorant people below me. You know, and, and, and we, sometimes we, we go there. We, we, we gravitate to where God has gifted us. We can gravitate towards this theological acumen and arrogance. And then we can gravitate towards just um, you know, just be gracious and don't worry about all that knowledge stuff. And yet Peter says, I want you to grow in both. Both the grace of God and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And well, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. Grow in grace and knowledge. How do you grow in knowledge? Well, that one's easy. You grow in knowledge... By reading your Bible, by going to a church that actually teaches you, that preaches the Bible, that that goes go to a, a small group or go to a fellowship where they actually expose you to the teachings of scripture. That's one way you can grow in knowledge. But how do you grow in grace? I'm thinking about this. How do you grow in the grace of God? And here's here's how I think you do it. You grow in God's grace by being reminded of how gracious God has been to you. You know, it's hard for me to be upset and legalistic and mean-spirited if I can just take a moment and remember from the pit from which God dug me and lifted me out and saved me. It's easy for me then to exhibit grace to others. And then this verse in John 1.14. got one more verse for you. I want to share this one with you and we're done. John 1.14 says this. And the Word became flesh. Now some of you are going, that's right. That's the Christmas sermon. Preach that. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talking about Jesus Christ. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Here it is. Full of grace and knowledge. Full of grace and truth. (sighs) Peter closes his epistle with this doxology, this anthem of praise when he says, this is it. Grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. To Him be the doxa, the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Oh, man, that's, that's what I want. That's what I want for the church that I pastor. That, that's what I want. I want for you and for me to grow in God's grace, to be people who are people of forgiveness, people who are people of grace, I'm reminded of Jesus when he sees this woman caught in adultery and, and everybody, the legalists, the Judaizers, have their stones and they're ready to pelt her and kill her. And Jesus, he says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. If, if you have never sinned, then by all means, kill her with your stones. And of course, they drop their stones one by one. But Jesus comes to this woman and he says, now lady, let me tell you something. I'm not going to throw no stone at you, but here's what I want you to do. Go and sin no more. You see, that is grace and that is truth, epitomized, personified. Thomas Chalmers was, well when he died they shut down the whole city of Edinburgh, Scotland and they celebrated his funeral. Thomas Chalmers, when he was three years of age, they enrolled him in elementary school. Hello? Three. He was reading and writing and doing basic math when he was three years. You thought, you know, if they had cars back then, they could really have a bumper sticker say, my kid's a genius, you know, my, my kid is really a genius. When he was 12, he matriculated into St. Andrews in Scotland, a prestigious university. When he was 12 years of age, he entered into the university. And guess what he majored in? Mathematics and chemistry. Hmm. Mercy. How do some people get all of that and some other people get none of that? I'm I'm fascinated by it. Anyhow, he's 12 years of age. Now, back in this day, it was a day when your most brilliant people became pastors. And your most educated people and the most respected people in the community, and this is another year, they were always the clergy. They were the pastors, and and this is what he was. He said, well, I'm going to be a pastor. It is the highest vocation known to man. And when he was 19, he finished uh, divinity school. And when he was 23 years of age, he was a bivocational pastor in Kilmeny, Scotland. Bivocation means Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at St Andrews in Scotland he lectured in chemistry and mathematics, but on Saturday and Sunday he visited the sick. He preached. He preached, and he was 23 years of age. When people would listen to him preach, they would say, "But you're not preaching the Bible." And he would say, no, I'm not preaching the Bible because I don't believe the Bible. <laughs> and they would say, well, why don't you believe the Bible? And he says, well, I'm too educated to believe the Bible. And they would say, well, why are you a pastor if you don't believe the Bible? He says, leave me alone. I'm just, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And he did this for six years. When he was 29 years of age, Thomas Chalmers said, for the very first time, I realized I could never earn my way to heaven it doesn't matter all the good things that I did. did not matter how brilliant I was. I had to receive Jesus Christ like a little child, and he did. And he was, the Bible would put it this way, he was born again. He was gloriously changed, and God saved him, and he kept his great mind. But the moment God saved him, it's like God gave him this great voice, this tongue, and he could preach. He became one of the greatest orators in Scotland. When he died in 1847, they had such a funeral parade that one person said, I know it's just the dust of a simple preacher, but we have given him more honor than a king in his death. And this is what Thomas Chalmers said, and this has gotten all over me this week, and I want to share this with you, and I'm not sure exactly who I'm going to say this for, but this is his quote, and this got all over me. He said, In my 20s, in my early years, before I really gave my life to Christ, I forgot the two great magnitudes of Christianity. And here's what they are. The shortness of this life and the length of eternity. The shortness, the brevity of this life that I was putting so much emphasis on, and yet I was not preparing for the length, for the extent of being with God in heaven or being departed from God in hell. So today, I I don't know where you are in your spiritual walk with God, but if you're here today and you have never given your life to Christ, you have never genuinely been born again by the Spirit of God, hold on just a second, hold on just a second. Somebody sitting over here, you may be a Randy Chatham, you may be a mountain of a man, or you may be a beautiful lady over here and you're sitting there arms folded and And God is speaking to you, and he is penetrating your your exterior, your, your heart, your hardened heart. And my prayer for you today is that you would surrender and you would give your life to Christ seriously. You would just say, God, here I am, a mess of me. I'm giving you my life. Take it for what it is. Cleanse me. Forgive me. I want to just believe the simple gospel that you were born of a virgin Mary, that you lived a perfect life, and you died for me. And they put you in the tomb and you came out of the grave. You ascended to the Father. I believe it all. I believe it all. I believe you're coming again. And I give you my life today. And I invite you to do that. I seriously invite you to do that. Anybody here today, you watching on television, watching us on the internet, or if you're here right here right now, I invite you to do that. But if you're here today and you know the Lord and you are a Christian, can I close with this word? Can I encourage you to grow in grace? Grow in compassion, grow in forgiveness, grow in being kind, and also grow in knowledge. Know the scriptures, know the Bible. And starting up in January the 9th, we're going to start teaching our systematic theology class again. And if you, you're more than welcome to come. We invite you to come. And some of you are saying, that's not my neighbor. I was talking to my neighbor other day. She goes, excuse me? She used to teach at Baylor University, Sikkim, Bears. She said, she goes, excuse me? She said, do you teach systematic theology to a bunch of lay people at 645 at your church? And I said, yes, I do. She goes, that's unheard of. She said, I've never heard of anybody, anybody ever. Done. And, and I know what she was thinking. She was thinking, well, I bet you nobody comes. <laughs> and I said, just 100, just 100 people show up and at least that many show up on, online watching it. And I'm so thrilled about doing that and teaching the book of Revelation because I want you to grow in knowledge, okay? But more than that, I want us to grow in grace. Father, we thank you today for our time of teaching your word. We thank you for each person that is here today. And God, I pray that you would take the message of the gospel that has been shared with the hearers, with the the congregants today, and that, Lord, you would speak to people's hearts and you would draw them to a personal relationship with your son. Father, I pray if there's anybody in this room, and surely there are, if if not dozens, there are hundreds of people right here today who genuinely, Lord, need to be born again by the Spirit of God. They genuinely need to repent and believe so that when that day comes, when their eyes close in death, or when you come again, there will be no shame. There will be only grace and forgiveness and joy and anticipation because, Lord, we are genuinely born again by the Spirit of God. And Lord, I do pray. I pray that you would grow us as a church, that we would be deep and wide, that we would be full of grace and full of knowledge and be a radiant church, Lord, for this city. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're about to do in this majestic, miraculous moment where we will stand to our feet and we will call men and women and boys and girls to faith in Christ. Unashamedly, Lord, boldly, we call them to repent and believe, to follow you in baptism, to walk with you, God, to live a life that is different. Not a libertarian lifestyle that anything goes, everything goes because we're forgiven, no. And certainly not a legalistic lifestyle that places more demands and more stipulations on people. But God, help us find the center. Help us find the sweet spot of the gospel where we live in grace and we live in truth. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.